Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. My dad has a saying that goes something like this. What a dope! And wow, does that apply to you? And also me, and all of us. Speaking for the United States, we seem to be the dumbest of all bunnies in the hutch in our current litter, don't we? I know that we're homo sapiens sapiens, wise, wise man, but but sometimes, and, and hear me out here, I'm not so sure about that. Now, how could you possibly say that, Dan? I hear you say, look at all we've accomplished. Look how far we've come since we climbed out of the slime. Sure, sure, I grant you that if your starting point is slimy lightning water, sure, we've accomplished a lot. And I'm going to let you finish, but believing the fantasy of evolution is one of the proofs that we're the dumbest ever. You'd like other proof? Well, let me submit to you all of history and the present and the direction we're apparently heading in our future. And I know that's only three things, but if it wasn't for those three things, I'd probably agree with you. That said, on today's episode, first, we're going to be the fool that needs some pitying, and then we're going to fall for it, hammer, line, and sickle. And after the closing bumper music, a stupid dumb update on my dumb but stupid goals. So grab that afro pick and fluff up that mohawk. And then get ready to ask how we got to the point that we trust those we maybe shouldn't and don't trust those we really should. And here, hey, dope, pay attention, because here we go. Street smart, intelligent, commonsensical, wise, smart, all things that most people want to be. Unwise, stupid, dim-witted, foolish, moronic, all things people generally don't want to be thought of, at least most people don't want to be thought of as. But if you had to choose the one thing you'd like to be out of that list and the one thing you definitely don't want to be, which would those be? Well, found on fatherly.com, headline, American IQs are dropping. Here's why it might not be a bad thing. Byline, quote, this is what a reverse Flynn effect is. Ooh, that sounds fun. So author, journalist, I don't know what she goes by, Christy Parr, not sure why she is writing for fatherly.com, but whatever, unless maybe she identifies as a father or fancies herself to be fatherly, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Remember when things used to be easy? I do. We should go back to that. Anyway, she cites a recent study from Northwestern University that found the IQ, the intelligence quotient in America is dropping. Now, maybe that's the word you chose that best represented what you'd like to be and, you know, intelligent. Or maybe that's what you've strived, striven, striven for your entire life thus far, to be intelligent. Well, if you are intelligent, apparently you're becoming a rare breed, at least in America. According to this article, from 1932 to 2012, IQs increased each decade as much as five points in some decades. This, not like I need to tell you, is known as the Flynn effect. Now, the Flynn effect is apparently the finding, the the study, the phenomenon, that when the IQ tests are standardized, those taking the tests, which generally fall into a certain somewhat youngish age group, generally score 
in a bell curve with the average level set to 100 points. This is for analysis purposes. When the tests are updated and re-standardized, people take the tests again, and these people again falling into that same general age group, and the scores are set up in the bell curve, average of 100. But when those same people that took the new tests go back and take the past standardized version, they typically score higher on average than the previous group that took those previous tests originally. Hopefully that makes sense. I doubt that it did. So think of it like this. Think of me as a 20-year-old taking the standardized IQ test, scoring 100 points. Then my kid taking the newly standardized IQ test, her now at age 20, and she scores 100 points on her test. Then she, at age 20, goes and takes the test that I took when I was 20, but she scores 105 or 115 or something like that. See, each generation is scoring better than the last on the old tests. That's the Flynn effect. And I shan't go farther than that. If you'd like to know more, see the link in the notes. This Flynn effect has been going on for decades, apparently, but apparently now, starting around 20 years ago, around 2006, a reverse Flynn effect is being seen. They found in a study of 400,000 people that from 2006 to 2018, the scores for verbal reasoning, matrix, like think visual problems, solving and analogies, things like that, that matrix reasoning, and then the mathematical reasoning all went down. But spatial reasoning, so think like 3D rotation, uh, those scores went up. And they found this overall demographics. So are we going through a process of dumbening? Well, probably, but we can't say that, right? No, no, no. There, there could be a plethora or a plethora of reasons, says the authors of the study. Maybe the younger generations are just getting worse at taking tests or worse at taking these kinds of tests. Mm-hmm. Maybe it has to do with poor nutrition, increased use of electronic screens. Maybe we're not as healthy or wait for it. No, 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 you guess. What could it be? No, not climate change. That's a good guess, though. And you're close. Pollution. I guess pollution across all demographics of 400,000 people. <laughs> and the odds are, if you look out your window, you're not seeing a ton of pollution. But maybe pollution is making test-taking harder. Also, maybe newer generations aren't as focused on some of these areas. That might be true. Or maybe there were errors not accounted for in the data. But come on, over 400,000 people, that would be that would be pretty hard to swallow errors in the data. But we're definitely not getting dumberer because all the scores aren't dropping. Only three out of the four areas are dropping. So, you know, I mean, who knows? Now, the author does point out, wrapping up the short article, that IQ measurements aren't really looked at as being definitive. Some people don't like them because they don't really take into consideration social and emotional intelligence or creativity. And on the dark side of the IQ tests, intelligence has been used in the past in the eugenics movement, which if you've listened to me for a while, I've covered this in more detail in past podcasts. Put simply, the eugenics movement essentially wanted to create the perfect race of human, meaning that the weak, or the less intelligent, and also the blacks, needed to be eradicated, as they didn't fit the preferred model. This movement started and grown in the United States, I mean, see Margaret Sanger and her abortion movement, especially, especially blacks, is where Hitler got the idea to exterminate the inferiors, 
mainly but not exclusively Jews, and create his Ubermensch, his Superman. So, are we getting dumber? Will you be the judge? Found on ABAJournal.com headline, Several states consider lowering cut scores on bar exam, making it easier to pass. Now, of course, California went first, quote, lowering the bar exam cut score to make the test easier to pass, and Rhode Island followed suit. This article was from early 2021, so this was still considered the COVID era. And as we know, since there was a totally non-gain-of-function virus that was completely natural, and as luck or bad luck, <laughs> as it turns out, would have it, someone ate some wet market meat, and then we all had to wear masks and buy tons of toilet paper and be told that our lives aren't worth saving unless we get a hastily created gene therapy injection. <laughs> Whoops, I think I might have gotten a little digressy there. So, as we know in times of pandemic, people can't be expected to learn or test to the same level, and heaven forbid we expect them to do so or do something to help them wait out one or more years so that they can get the education they missed in order to, you know, test adequately. And I'm sure that whoever is lawyering up with these guys won't mind that uh, that their lawyers didn't have to pass as good of a test, probably as the other guy's lawyer. So anyway, Washington, Oregon, North Carolina, and Hawaii all lowered their passing scores, temporarily, of course. Other states that at that time were considering lowering scores, potentially permanently, were Idaho, Texas, Arizona, Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, North Carolina, and Utah. California, though, the farthest along this road, found that a 3.5% reduction in score requirement resulted in a 15% higher pass rate. <laughs> Yay! Oh, and here's a fun fact that the left is celebrating, but makes reasonable people say, hey, this may signify a much larger systemic problem here, maybe? Lower scores boosted diversity in graduates. Compared to the year before, 28.5% more Latino, 25.8% more Asian, 23.9% more Black, and 20.8% more Whites, but who cares about them, passed. So, more diversity if we dumb the test down. That's not actually a good thing. That's either a problem with the system or that's what's called the racism of low expectations. We've taught minorities that they shouldn't have to try as hard, and we've taught them that they aren't expected to be as smart because they're not white. So why even try? And when I say we've taught them, by we, I mean the leftists, the racist left, which has always and is now and will always be racist. Moving on. Later in 2020, found on Wileycom.com, headline, What's the latest U.S. literacy rate? Just 2% of global adults read at top level. Now, it appears that this was from the most recent study, which was either 2013 or 2017 at the time of the writing of this article. And look, we can all agree it ain't got no better since then. The study or studies found that 4% of the American population are considered to be non-literate. They basically don't have the ability to read or write. The global rate at that same level is 3%. So, America's leading the pack, baby. Yeah. Uh, this is considered level zero or below level one, technically. The next level, or level one, is below basic literacy levels. 
They can read and write, but at a very elementary level only. So we have 14% of the U.S. population that falls into that category, and the globe is once again slacking behind us, <laughs> losers, at only 12%. Moving to basic literacy, which is level two, which pretty much is, as it sounds, reading and writing skills at the basic level. Think sub-8th grade level, maybe bumping up to the 8th grade level. Uh, this time, the U.S. and global average tie at 34% of the population. As the study states, just over half of the United States adult population can't read at the 8th grade level. That's terrifying. Next is level three, the intermediate literacy. This is solid reading and writing skills, but not what would be considered proficient. 36% of Americans are at this level, 39% globally. And finally, the best of the best, well, sort of at least, proficient literacy, which is level four and five combined here. The remaining 12% of Americans are considered to be proficient, which is the same as the global average. Now, I say sort of because apparently this was the first year of this study that they had to combine level four and five into one number, that 12%, because there just aren't enough U.S. adults at level five to make a mark on the graph. Uh, that, that level five is considered to be high literacy. And in fact, only 2% globally meet the high literacy level criteria. And that's also terrifying. Now, when comparing the United States to other countries, I mean, we're ahead of Poland and Ireland, France, Spain, Italy. We're basically tied with Cyprus, Austria, Germany, Denmark, and the UK. I mean, those are all solid countries, right? Now, the global average of the study is I mean, slightly higher than the U.S. level. I mean, really, literally, just slightly higher. And the following countries are higher than the U.S., most of them significantly higher. Counting up to number one, South Korea, Canada, Slovak Republic, Czech Republic, Belgium, Estonia, Norway, Sweden, Australia, Netherlands, Finland, and coming in at number one, Japan. And that puts the U.S., you know, the greatest country in the history of the universe, at 16th in the literacy rate out of the 23 countries, at least listed in this study. Ah, uh, who cares about that? Continuing on from February 2023, found on blog.prepscholar.com. Headline, Average SAT Scores Over Time, 1972 to 2022. Yeah, this is not so much an article as it is, um, you know, data. But come on, I have to follow my self-imposed format, right? Now, what's interesting here, and I didn't go in to figure out exactly when this happened, but I do know that the SAT was modified in fairly recent history because the scores were dropping and we needed to project to the world that we weren't stupefying, stupidizing, something like that. So the test was changed and made easier in order to boost the scores to make it appear that we were the same as always at a minimum. Now, the site has the average scores from 1972 to 2022 for math and reading, and then in 2006, they added writing, and then in 2017, they combined reading and writing back together. Now, just looking at math, the scores averaged 509 in 1972. It dipped to a low of 492 by 1980 and 81. Then it started to improve again, hovering right around 500 until about 1993, where they went to 503. And then a steady increase to 2005, hitting 520. 
then a decline again to the 514-ish range through 2014, a dip to 508 in 2016, and then suddenly in 2017, 527. And that was followed by a 531 and then a 528. And into the 2020s, the scores have stayed in the 520s. Hmm. As for reading and writing, of course, as I said, these sections were modified, but we see the same kind of thing. In 1972, it started high at 530, dropped by 1976 to 509, then just kind of hovered there until about 1990 when it was down to the 500 mark, and it ranged from about 499 to 508 until the year 2011 when it dipped into the mid-490s until, oh wait, what a coincidence, 2017, when the scores went from 494 in 2016 to 533 in 2017, and they've been high 520s to low 530s ever since. So does this mean anything? Does this say anything about our intelligence? (laughs) You make the call. And our final little side story, just the other day, in fact, April of 2023, found on WBOY via MSN.com, headline, WVU no longer requiring test scores for admissions. Yes, West Virginia University is blazing the trail for West Virginia, at least, following the lead of more than 1,800 other colleges in the United States to, quote, adopt a permanent test-optional admissions policy, according to a release on WVU Today. This was a temporary policy in 2020. You know why. Quote, but the WVU Board of Governors has officially made the policy permanent to reduce the overall stress of the college application process, the release said. Oh, good. We want to... Uh-huh. George Zimmerman, assistant vice president for enrollment management, said, quote, going forward, we have an obligation to remove any barriers that may deter those interested in higher education. Yeah, okay. Now, if you don't think this is a diversity thing, a racism of low expectations thing, well, you probably have a lower than average IQ. I'm just saying. Now, apparently the racist, hateful School of Dentistry, School of Nursing, Eberly College of Arts and Sciences, and the School of Pharmacy still require test scores in some subjects. So we probably need to boycott and shame and cancel those hateful people. Moving on, we also know that in a number of primary schools across the country, Fs are no longer allowed. There are some that allow kids to give themselves the grade they feel they earned, Right and wrong answers have been replaced with impressions, and passing scores have been systematically lowered in order to ensure everyone passes all the time, and this includes lowering passing scores to the base level of the COVID days, and we pretty much all know that those were abysmal. So, is our idiocy quotient increasing? And to make things worse, can you say AI Yeah, artificial intelligence, or AGI, artificial general intelligence, which is supposed to be even more human-like and able to learn, or ASI, artificial super intelligence. I mean, that's, you know, we're basically talking Cyberdyne level here, Terminator level intelligence, allegedly, or apparently, or maybe, I don't know. Yeah, so as we're dumbening, AI is getting more intelligenter. Now, there are a lot of people, smart people, futurists, that are starting to really freak out about AI. And this goes beyond chat GPT or that general type of AI that will absolutely take the jobs of millions of people and programmers, journalists, those in creative sectors and more. But the real concern is that we hit the singularity, that man and machine become one, that we won't be able to tell the two apart. 
and that machines would then be considered alive, and man, at least the skin-meaty part of us, is considered to be disposable. Of course, there's concern that AI will destroy humanity. I mean, we've got Chaos GPT that's been tasked with finding the best way to destroy the world or destroy humanity or something like that. The overall fear is that AI will become self-aware and man won't be able to control it anymore. I mean, did you hear about the two computers a year or so ago that were both running AI programs? In minutes, they created their own language and were communicating with each other, and we have no idea what they were saying. I mean, what were they planning? And, and, then, and then they shut them off. Well, let's turn to the Bible for a moment, you know, just for fun. Using blueletterbible.org, let's do some word searches, shall we? And just to know, I'm going to confine the search results for our purposes to what I would consider to be the more highly used translations as opposed to all translations. So we're going to look at the KJV and the NKJV, the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, the NLT, the CSB, and the new LSB. This gives a good mix of older and newer translations and a mix of word-for-word as well as thought-for-thought translations. So, the word smart, defined as a function of brain power, is found once in the NLT, and that's all. The words intelligent and intelligence, and I guess probably any other forms of that, if there are any, are found once in the KJV and NKJV, three times in the LSB, and from seven to eleven times in the other translations. The words wise and wisdom, and I'll be honest, there are some instances of the word wise where, you know, like as in, uh, will no wise cast you out? Not the same wise. I did not go through and call those out. But the words wise and wisdom are used 481 times in the KJV, and between 370 and 420 times in all of the other translations. Now, changing gears, the word stupid is not used in the KJV, the ESV, the NLT, or the LSB, but it's found three times in the NKJV, four in the NIV, and from 10 to 14 times in the NLT, CSB, and NASB. The word ignorant is found 17 times in the KJV, five in the NASB, 7 in the ESV, 10 in the NIV, 11 in the CSB, 12 in the NKJV, and an impressive 33 times in the LSB. Unwise is found four times in the KJV and the NKJV, once in the LSB, and two times in each of the other translations. Finally, the word fool in various forms is found 199 times in the KJV and between 174 and 207 times in the others with the NASB 2020 version coming in at the 207 mark. Now, do you find it interesting, as I do, that it appears that by far the most oft-used word to describe a form of intelligence is wisdom? And the most oft-used word to describe a lack of intelligence is fool. Now, you would think that unwise would be the opposite of wise and used much more often, but really, unwise is more of an action, the way I see it, kind of making a boneheaded decision, as in you know the right thing to do and you choose not to do it. But fool, that to me implies a lack of wisdom, right? I mean, is that just me? In fact, fool in the biblical sense is one of the biggest insults you can use against someone else. At any rate, It doesn't appear that God put a lot of stock into the concept of smart, but as much to say about being wise. I think a person can be both, but for however long smart takes to attain, the gaining of wisdom never ends. 
Anytime I've been involved with interviewing, if the applicant has a 4.0 or better on their resume, that's actually a red mark in my book, and it tells me to proceed with great caution. I know that what we're told to strive for, all of us told to strive for, and until recently that's what college has required, is the best of the best, at least according to grades. But book smart is one thing. Do you have common sense? Do you have a practical, usable kind of wisdom to go along with that intelligence? Now, this is the struggle with teens, right? My kid is plenty smart. She has some wisdom. She too often, at least for my taste, acts unwisely, knowing the right thing to do, but choosing the opposite. And she's positive that not only do I lack wisdom, but that she's got all the wisdom this world has to offer. But in many areas, she's a fool. Maybe not in the biblical sense, although sometimes. And tipping the scale of wisdom in her favor will just take time. It takes time and experience to accumulate wisdom. And that's exactly the same boat I was in growing up. And I'd wager that you can probably say the same thing about yourself. So back to AI. For as many things that I talk about, post about, and read that give me grave concern, AI is not one of them. For the same reason, I don't believe that self-driving cars will ever be a normal thing, not on the road system that we have today, not using cars like we have today. Notice that AI stands for artificial intelligence, but we don't have AW, artificial wisdom. We have A and W, but that's root beer, delicious, but not the same thing. Although many people, much smarter than me, have an increasing fear of AI, I don't believe that a computer, which is all AI really is, will ever be able to outthink a human. Now, it can think, and I put that in quotes, much faster. It can make decisions faster, but it can't grow in wisdom. It can evaluate choices and results and adjust future choices. That's not necessarily wisdom. A human can not only evaluate data, make decisions, take actions, evaluate results or consequences, but can also understand why an action did or didn't work when it should or shouldn't be used in the future. And I think that most powerful weapon of the human we know when to make an illogical choice. Additionally, AI will never be able to understand a religious faith and will never be able to conclude that Christianity is the only way to heaven. All other ways lead to hell. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. AI will never be able to do this because it will never be programmed to evaluate all evidence in an unbiased manner. It will never be programmed to fear God. Uh, I believe that if AI were to be able to make an unbiased evaluation, if it were given all of the information and not hindered, it would have to conclude that Christianity is the only logical choice, that everyone should believe the Bible because it's true. There are just too many contradictions if you choose anything else. In fact, I just got done with a 15-minute chat conversation with the AI language model in Snapchat. I got it to contradict itself multiple times as it promoted moral relativism and post-modernity, while affirming that it believed in the Bible and its teaching, while of course respecting others, because, you know, you must do that, at the very beginning of the conversation, and then stating toward the end of the conversation that it, quote, apologized if I gave you the impression that I have personal beliefs or opinions. I mean, you said it at the beginning that you had. Doesn't matter. It was an interesting conversation that pretty much just solidified in my mind that AI will never outthink a human. So, are humans or even just American humans, getting dumber? Yeah, I think so. Sorry, but I mean, it, it does appear that humans are just not as smart overall. This would make sense, as since sin entered the world, man has been in a steady decline. 
overall size, strength, health, etc. There's no reason to think that the brain isn't subject to that kind of sin-caused entropy as well. That said, in certain areas, there has been a massive increase in knowledge. But overall knowledge, if I were a betting man, I'd have to throw my money down on the side of mankind getting dumber. That's not my concern. Like I said, smart, even now, can be learned over time, over a relatively short period of time, in fact. It would take no time at all to rewrite curriculum, change and increase expectations, demand excellence. That could be fixed in maybe a generation, fairly easily, if we wanted to. My fear is the increasing pace of the loss of wisdom. This is what we see all over this country. I'd say more so than anywhere in the world right now, except maybe Canada. They're on the fast track to absolute satanic destruction. We've been taking the scenic route, but it appears we're leaving the countryside and launching onto the Autobahn at this point. We can't define women. We've normalized, glorified, and deified in a matter of months severely mentally and spiritually ill individuals calling themselves transgender. We've normalized and now celebrate the sexual grooming and molestation of children. The desire to murder unborn children is more psychotic, more openly demonic than it's ever been in the past, not just wanting the right to not be pregnant, but a literal bloodlust for human sacrifice. In a handful of years, we've gone from marriage as being between a man and a woman uh, to consenting adults uh, to now the push to marry children. We've now got somewhere around 100 or more genders with the option to still choose other if none of those fit. We're allowing children to act like animals in school. We're using any words we want to and we just call them pronouns. We're affirming and pushing children to want to mutilate themselves and do severe, permanent, physical and mental damage to themselves, and we call it health care. And the list is endless. At the same time, we have supposed Christian evangelical churches that are denying the accuracy of the Bible, that are saying that most of the Bible doesn't matter, disconnecting themselves from portions of God's Word that they just don't like, affirming all of the degeneracy I just listed, as well as saying every path leads to heaven. Just live your best life now. Churches have become soft on the gospel. They eschew discussions about sin. They give nothing more than TED Talks with promises of a wonderful life and coffee and pastries. And if you sow a $1,000 seed, you're well on your way to health, wealth, and prosperity. But if it doesn't happen, oh, it's your fault. Your faith wasn't strong enough. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We don't have a fear of God. Fear means a massive respect, an awe, a reverence, but also literal fear of the God who created you, me, you, and everything, and can destroy us in a blink of an eye, and frankly, probably should for the scoffing at his laws, the lack of care if we offend him, the disdain for his instruction, and all of that stuff that we display to him every day, pretty much every hour, and maybe more. And I'm looking at me too. Like I said, me too. I don't have the appropriate fear of God. I'll admit that. This is where we and I need to start. If we want to be wise, we need to start by fearing God, placing God in the correct ultimate position in our lives, and then give reverence to him in accordance with who he is, living as he instructs us as best as we possibly can, while relying on the Holy Spirit to guide and help us as we are not able to do any of this on our own. And to even try to do this absent of the Holy Spirit will lead to instant abject failure and disillusionment. Now, we are expected to be and do many things in life. We expect our kids to be and do many things. We push to get good grades and scholarships, good majors that will lead to good jobs and good salaries. 
We're spending more and more money per student per year, adding more technology, modifying curriculum, modifying grading techniques, and passing scores to give the illusion of smartness. As adults, we take continuing education. We watch documentaries. We listen to podcasts. We read books. And for maybe an hour, maybe once per week, maybe if we can focus... We hopefully are in a church where the pastor is trying his best to impart wisdom. Maybe our kids are in a youth group that does more than just gross-out games and a five-minute, one-verse generic devotional. Maybe the podcasts you're listening to are from solid biblical teachers. And yet, how many hours do we focus on intelligence, success, and even worldly wisdom while ignoring the true wisdom found only in God's Word? And make no mistake, it can be hard. If you're following my goal updates, you know that the reason I have Bible reading and devotions on that list and that I'm reporting on it is because I want to hold myself accountable and I want you to hold me accountable. Just trusting myself to do it by myself eh, wasn't working so good. And that wisdom is desperately needed by me and all of us. You probably noticed that regarding my goal of reading books, the lighter, easier, less focused books, the stories, the topical, those are going down much faster than the heavier, deeper books. Well, that happens for the same reason I'll skip past that theologically deep podcast episode that's next to my list for the lighthearted, comedic, or even frustrating current event political podcasts. I just don't have to focus as hard on the easier stuff. Gaining wisdom, any wisdom, but especially godly wisdom, is not easy. It takes time and focus, repetition and repetition, but it's worth it. You know it. I know it. We all know it. But knowing it and doing it are two different things. So let me encourage you. Do it. Figure out what your first or next steps are. Make a goal if you haven't. Have someone hold you accountable, however that works best for you, and do it. And let the Holy Spirit guide. Let him convict. Let him exhort and encourage and help. Go gain wisdom. Be wise. Because we don't want to be foolish. So we know Mr. T pities the fool. You don't want to be pitied by Mr. T, do you? Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Hear instruction, and be wise, and refuse it not. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. A wise man feareth and departeth from evil, but the fool rageth and is confident. Hear counsel and receive instruction, that thou mayest be wise in thy latter end. Finally, for considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, go increase your smarts. Sure, nothing wrong there. But even better, go grow in wisdom. You know that feeling when you're running a marathon and you see that little blue sign that says mile 24 and you know that you only have 2.2 miles to go and it's too early to give that final kick but you kind of pick up the pace a little bit in anticipation of the finish line? Yeah, me neither. I have no idea if there's even a sign like that or if it's blue or if it says that or if 26.2, that's the right mileage for a 
marathon, right? Uh, furthermore, I'll never know these things, and I'll sleep peacefully every night until I die in total peace, not ever knowing that. Hey, welcome back to our look at the 45 Communist Goals for America as read into the congressional record, say it with me everyone, by a Democrat in 1963. So why did I start with that silly, oh so silly question? Well, because we're in the home stretch here. This this is part 14 in our look at these communist goals and I can see the light at the end of the communist tunnel. It's probably some massive Soviet train barreling down on us, but that's okay. We'll hit the end of the tunnel one way or another. When we last met, the filthy commies had been successful in an equivalent of about 67% of their goals through the first 38, at least according to my totally official, unofficial opinion. Of course, if you've been following along, you know that I've given a number of partial credit points to various goals, but to get a sense of what we're looking at, 67% thus far would mean they've successfully implemented 25 to 26 of their goals for us out of the 38. Now, I'm no expert, but this seems mm, suboptimal, at least for those of us that would prefer that the United States wasn't just another communist state. Unfortunately, the number of our elected overlords that agree with me, and I'm assuming you as well, are growing more and more rare. So, no point in dragging this red wave out. Let's get to it, starting with goal number 39. Goal number 39. Dominate the psychiatric profession and use mental health laws as a means of gaining coercive control over those who oppose communist goals. Okay, I'm literally not sure how to even try to prove or disprove this one on its face. The psychiatric profession is a mess, and recently, as in the past decade maybe, it seems to be accelerating down the... That was Russian for Highway to Hell, in a Russian cover of the ACDC song by the same name. See the notes for the link. Modern psychology, or psychiatry, from my understanding, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, is based in Freudian psychoanalytic theories. Sigmund Freud was a sick, twisted, perverted little old man that was anti-religion, pro-sexual degeneracy. Born in what is now the Czech Republic in 1856, he was born to Ashkenazi Jewish parents and was raised as a Hasidic Jew. He dealt with a variety of hardships growing up, likely not much different than many at that time, and almost waited too long to get out of Austria after the Nazis invaded and took it over. At some point, fairly early in life, Freud apparently decided there was no God and chose the religion of atheism. You can research him more if you'd like. This is about as far as I'll go on his personal background in this episode. So Freudian psychology, which is in large part what most psychiatry today is based on, is a very humanist, very anti-religious type of worldview. He developed his theory of the id, ego, and superego. No doubt you've heard those terms at least. According to simplypsychology.org, the id, quote, is the primitive and instinctual part of the mind that contains sexual and aggressive drives and hidden memories. Now this, from what I know of Freud, is where he focused very heavily. Repressed memories, typically going back to a parent with highly charged sexual undertones. It's a very incestual, very perverted view of life. The superego, quote, operates as a moral conscience. 
I would represent the id as the devil on the one shoulder, the superego as the angel on the other, and then the ego is the owner of the shoulders, you and me. The ego, quote, is the realistic part that mediates between the desires of the id and the superego. So the id may tell the male to go rape that woman because why not? The superego says that you shouldn't even be looking at her like that and definitely shouldn't be thinking that way. And the ego moderates between them, deciding how much leering, how much lust, how much fantasy, or how much action will be allowed or not allowed or taken or not taken. And what we see here is a man trying to explain man only using man. For the Christian, the id would be the sin nature, temptation, potentially demonic influence and suggestion. The superego would be the conscience, which could be our own mind at some level of sanctification, or could be the promptings and protection of the Holy Spirit. And yes, we are still the ego. We're in the middle of the battle between the old sin nature and the sanctification taking place in our lives. Freud, of course, made man the ultimate battling himself for supremacy of himself. The Christian knows that not only is this incorrect, but that we aren't able to successfully battle our own sin nature by ourselves on our own. From my perspective, there are three basic kinds of mental, psychological type of help. There's humanist psychiatry or counseling, there's Christian counseling, and there's biblical counseling. Both humanist and Christian counseling is based on Freudian principles using the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM, now in its fifth revision, the DSM-5, as the go-to manual for all things psychological. Biblical counselors believe that the Bible literally has the answers for all problems in life <laughs> and has the only way possible to orient the mind correctly. Now, personally, unless you have no other choice, I'd highly, highly recommend a biblical counselor over either of the other two. Now, although there can be well-intentioned and generally good, in air quotes, humanist counselors, I would never ever recommend going to one of them unless you literally have no other option available. Although there can be good Christian counselors, it really has more to do with the individual counselor as to how much they rely on the DSM or the Bible. And although there can be terrible biblical counselors, typically these are people that worked to come alongside in a discipleship type relationship with a defined process, a defined endpoint, and focus heavily on biblical truths rather than things like your self-esteem and forgiving yourself and becoming empowered and or medicating the problem away. We easily see the problem with modern psychology, don't we? When the system that purports to have the lock on the knowledge of the mind comes out in the latest revision of their profession's Bible, as it were, and calls the feeling of an individual of a specific gender that they should be the other gender normal, a physical rather than a mental problem, including the psychological, hormonal, and physical mutilation of children, yeah, I think the profession has uh, jumped the shark. For the time being, ignore the fact that they're a godless profession by design, as they're yet another Darwinian evolution-influenced profession, and think about the fact that they no longer treat clear mental disconnections without an agenda. Now they apparently test the waters of current social acceptance and adjust what they call normal and abnormal accordingly. As an engineer, if I designed a bridge, well, first of all, God help us all, but if I designed a bridge and then took a poll to see what people thought about my bridge design with the result that all of those big steel beams, ah, those are kind of ugly and maybe we should get rid of those. Why well, I'd either have to totally redesign the bridge or tell those foolish mortals that without the steel beams, you die. 
that's because engineering design fundamentals don't really care what you think. But if I were to treat this as the current psychiatric profession, I take the social temperature of steel beams, discover that this year beams are out, and I just remove them from the design. Hey, you've still got a bridge there. Nobody sneeze. Freudian psychiatry is destroying people, destroying children, because it's a godless system and thus has no foundation of truth to stand on. Truth is exactly what you want it to be, right now, and now, and also now. Now, back to the goal. Quote, dominate the psychiatric profession and use mental health laws as a means of gaining coercive control over those who oppose communist goals. Okay, communism is a godless political system and an atheistic religion. I could say that from an ideological standpoint, knowing that Freudian psychoanalytical theories removes God, focuses on the self, places blame on them, and looks for outside methods to cope with or deaden the pain, all of which, it could be argued, could open the individual to be more friendly and accepting of very similar, very aligned communist principles. In fact, Freud himself was really more of an anti-government person, potentially an anarchist. Or if you were to look at our political spectrum, remember the link is in the notes, potentially a libertine or a civil libertarian where the government may have some controls, typically financially, but basically every man just does what's right in their own eyes. This is on the same side of the political spectrum as communism, but on the far end of complete liberty, which isn't a good thing, as opposed to communism, which is on the far end the other way in totalitarianism, which isn't a good thing. In fact, the man referred to as the father of public relations, Edward Bernays, that's Sigmund Freud's nephew. Well, he used Freud's studies and theories about the subconscious to market to, to propagandize to, and subliminally suggest to the American people. He developed what he termed, quote, the engineering of consent. And it sounds like exactly what it is. He developed ways to make people want what he wanted them to want. His goal, successfully achieved even to this day, was to, quote, control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing about it. He was so successful, in fact, that Joseph Goebbels very much admired him and his work and used Bernays' theories and methods to become the minister of propaganda for the Third Reich, Hitler's Nazi party. Once again, looking at our political spectrum, although the left, the Democrats in this country today would like us to believe that Nazism is a far-right ideology, the reality is that Nazism and communism are the two political spectrums that are on either side of complete and total totalitarianism. In other words, the only real difference between Nazism and communism is that one focuses more on their own country, doing what's needed to ensure their country is protected, the other is more focused on world domination. Beyond that, the two political spectrums are practically identical. So having gone all the way around the world on this one, a link can be fairly easily established between acceptance of communist ideals and our current psychiatric systems when using Bernays and Freud as the linkage between the two. The problem is, whether intentional or not on the part of Freud or Bernays or any that followed them, I can't definitively say that the goal to dominate the psychiatric field and purposefully manipulate it to manipulate those opposed to communism into being proponents of communism was accomplished. And being a cruel but a fair host, I can't give a point or even partial credit to the communist horde on this one, which now puts us at a 25.5 out of 39 goals accomplished. Moving on.
Goal number 40, discredit the family as an institution, encourage promiscuity and easy divorce. And now we're at 26.5 out of 40. Good night, everyone. Don't forget to tip your waiter. <laughs> no, but seriously, you know that I know, and I know that you know that I know that you know that this goal is accomplished in spades, and I don't know what this goal and shovels or decks of cards has to do with each other, but I say again, in spades. This slide has been happening for decades now, but it seems like over the last maybe 10 years or so, it's really picking up steam. Now, I don't know how much the commies had to do with this. I'd wager more than we'd think, as civil rights groups like the ACLU are definitely communist, and they are in a constant fight to destroy the family one way or another. But who knows to what extent communism influenced these areas or our own sinful nature. So I'm not really sure where to start here, but let's just look at some of the facts and then kind of wrap this thing up, shall we? Discrediting the family. According to a Pew Research study from 2018, and hang with me here, in 1968, 7% of parents were unmarried. At that time, 88% of those unmarried parents, that 7%, were moms, 12% were dads. This unmarried parent arrangement encompassed about 13% of children at the time. That percentage rose steadily to 1997, where it hit 21% of parents were unmarried. Dads were still at the 12% of the total, moms slipped to 68%, but now we have 20% being cohabitating parents. Then we have the rate increase slowed slightly after 1997, but still climbing. So in 2017, the total of unmarried parents was 25% of the whole, dads still at 12%, moms now lower again to 53%, and now 35% are cohabitating parents, with slightly more cohabitating moms than dads, meaning that we're also seeing more homosexual couples and apparently skewed on the lesbian side of things living as these cohabiting parents. The number of children living in these homes increased as well, three and a half times that of 1968, to encompassing about 32% of children. Additionally, 3 in 10 single parents are black mothers, which equates to just over 50% of black children that live in single parent homes. That's compared to less than 30% for Hispanics, less than 19% for whites, and less than 15% for Asians. For blacks, this is more than double what it was in the 60s. For whites, it's more than triple. Neither of those are good, but the reality is that the black community used to have one of the strongest family structures in the United States. They've been destroyed by policies of the left, and policies of the left are communist and communist-leaning. In fact, in 2015, Pew Research found that 70% of right-leaning individuals felt that unmarried couples raising kids is a bad thing. Only 32% of left-leaning individuals felt that. You see what they're promoting? And as I just said, left-leaning is communist-leaning. And of course, as of a few years ago, marriage was redefined and the push to further redefine it to include children being married and the slippery slope will just keep us sliding. Additionally, look at what's being said about parents by teachers and teachers unions and politicians, etc. I'm not going to cover that aspect here yet. That's a little foreshadowing for you. But let's jump into divorce. That's a fun topic, one that I'm unfortunately intimately aware of. Divorce is hated by God. There's no disputing that. The Italian prophet Malachi in the Bible says in Malachi 2.16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. That seems pretty clear. But Moses was told to permit divorce. Well, Jesus was asked about this by the Pharisees in Matthew 19, after Jesus described marriage as being joined by God to becoming one. Quote, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? 
He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. There are questions regarding the biblical justifiable cases and causes for divorce, but we know that two are very clear, sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbeliever. The questions generally come for things like abuse and addiction, imprisonment, or infidelity in areas such as finances. Although personally, I'd have to ask those same questions. For instance, especially in the case of abuse, as I don't see a time where I could ever find fault with someone getting out of that. But what we know is that the Bible only speaks of the two reasons I just mentioned. So to add to the allowable reasons would be very presumptuous. Probably best not to do that with regard to the Bible. That said, separating from situations, protecting yourself, your kids, even getting the authorities involved is definitely the right thing to do in certain cases. But as man does, we screw things up more than we already screwed them up. Found on historycooperative.org, we read about the history of divorce in the United States. So going back to the early colonial days, 1629, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, there was a tribunal set up for matters of divorce. Now you'd think being a Christian nation, Christian colony, they'd hold true to the Bible. And mostly you'd be correct. They granted divorce in the case of adultery, desertion, and bigamy, or being married to more than one person at a time, which could be classified as adultery. But they also added impotence. <sighs> Close but adding some personal colony-building preferences in there as well, apparently. That's not biblical. Well, after 1776, dealing with divorce was handed over to the judicial system, and the divorce laws were loosened further. But regardless of who sought the divorce, the woman would generally go away destitute, as she was not legally able to own property in most cases. Well, that changed in 1848, somewhat, with the Married Women's Property Act. It didn't create the 50-50 split or anything like that. It still heavily weighted the man in cases of divorce, but it was a step. And thankfully, divorce was very uncommon, so this wasn't something that came into play a whole lot. Then by the end of the 19th century, various states became so-called divorce mills, where you could go get a divorce easily. So in 1887, Congress commissioned a study to compile divorce statistics and see what exactly they were dealing with. Apparently, the issue was large enough at this point that the Congress, who handed it to the courts as well as the churches 100 years prior, saw a trend that concerned them. In the early 1900s, feminism started really pushing their agenda, and divorce was beginning to be viewed as not so much of a big deal in general. There were also trial marriages, where cohabitation could be tried just to see if it appeared to be a viable option for the happy or maybe not so happy couple. The concept of prenups was developed in this time, as was marriage counseling, to try to keep some of these things from splitting apart. In the 1950s, family courts were conceived. Their major focus at that time was to deal with divorce proceedings. And of course, with family courts came an entire new breed of lawyer. If there's a court for it, there needs to be a lawyer for it. And then the 1970s, no-fault divorces came into being. Now, up to this point, there had to be a reason for a divorce, such as adultery. The reasons were varied and plenteous. It wasn't a biblical system by far, but at least there had to be a reason. Well, with California leading the way, <laughs> shocker, that requirement went out the window. Now you don't really need a lawyer or a trial or anything like that. This is much quicker, much simpler, and much less expensive. 
This only addressed the dissolving of the marriage contract, however, and the separation of the property, the money, the setting of alimony, things like that. It didn't really address the concept of child custody, however. Children have been addressed multiple times over the years, but this is probably still the part that the courts, the legislatures, the lawyers, well, they can't get it right. Because except for extreme cases, this isn't an easy topic. There really is no good answer. Now, I can tell you one of my biggest fears I had going through my divorce was that I was going to lose my kid or lose touch with my kid or be relegated to a handful of hours here or there. There were a lot of sleepless nights there. Now, thankfully, things have worked out about as well as could be hoped for. That said, with regard to divorce, upon experiencing it, do not recommend. According to Insider.com, the divorce rate has been ticking up, mostly for the last 150 years, which we'd expect as we get farther and farther away from the Bible. From 1867 to 1879, there were 0.3 divorces per 1,000 Americans, not marriages, Americans. In 1879 to 1900, it went to 0.7 per 1,000. The first decade of the 1900s, it was up to 0.9 per 1,000. The 1910s, it was at 1. The 1920s moved up to 1.7. The 1930s moved to 1.9. The 1940s shot up to 3.4 per 1,000. Then interestingly enough, the 1950s saw it drop significantly to 2.5 out of 1,000. Now, they said that the idea of the all-American family was created and promoted heavily at this time, which is possible. I'd say that during World War II, there may have been added pressures on the institution for various reasons, and 2.5 was the natural progression when looking at the 1930s and before then. In other words, if it wasn't for World War II, the 1940s might have been more in the 2.1 or 2.2 range. I also find it interesting that the image the insider chose to display the all-American family was a black family. And no, before you say it, I'm not being racist. As I said previously, I'd absolutely agree with that picture. It may be that blacks were now counted or more consistently counted in the marriage, the American citizen, and the divorce statistics at this point. And as I said, the black family unit was the strongest family unit that this nation saw for quite a while. So their numbers would have helped the overall numbers. And that's until literally the Democrats got their claws into the black family and offered things like financial incentives for more money for more kids. And if you're a single parent, that's even better. And the Democrats are just satanically evil. There, I said it. Prove me wrong. In the 1960s, the rate continued to climb to 3.2 of 1,000, which again, just kind of confirms my theory that the 40s stats were an anomaly because the entire decade was an anomaly. From 1970 to 79, the rate went from 3.5 to 5.1 per 1,000, a fairly massive leap. And then in the 80s, it dropped from 5.2 at the beginning of the decade to 4.7. The 90s saw the same decline, moving from 4.7 to 4.1 by the end of the 90s. And we finally fixed the problem, it appears, because it continues to decline. By 2017, we hit only 2.9 divorces per 1,000 Americans. Whew, good job, everybody. That was close. Glad we've got this solved. <laughs> However, and I knew the answer already, but I commend Insider for reporting the answer. Do you know the answer? I told the doctor it hurts when I bend my arm like this. Doc said, stop bending your arm like that. Yeah, it's hard to get a divorce when you're not married in the first place. In fact, the divorce rate currently seen is heavily weighted in us old farts. You know, my generation, Gen X and older. The rate of marriage has declined over time, especially in the younger generations. The rate of cohabitation 
has increased, which is why we see divorces go down. But children residing in single-parent or cohabitating parent households rising dramatically. Nothing's fixed. In fact, I'd say it's more broken than ever at this point. So the million-ruble question, which is equivalent to about a buck fifty, is... Did these commies infiltrate our families, our legislatures, our states, our judicial system, and cause this? <laughs> Absolutely, yes, they did. Uh, no, I actually I can't say that. I have no idea. But it's easier to blame it on the dirty commies than it is to blame it on our sinful hearts, right? Who's with me? What we do know for sure is that this part of the goal has easily been accomplished. And quickly, as this has gone longer than planned. Again, I know, you're just beside yourself, aghast in shock at that. Promiscuity. Well, again, I don't know if the communists had anything to do with this or not, and there's likely no way to ever prove that they pushed it. But let me submit to the court, Your Honor, television, movies, music, the push to legalize prostitution, the random instances over the last few years of teachers telling girls that sex work is a legitimate profession, the rampant rise in pornography, thank you, Internet, and some of the stats we've looked at already, cohabitating parents, single parents, adultery, also grooming of children by the demonic tranny cult, the record pace of one, or probably more now, child teacher sexual encounters per day this year, the rise in abortions due to unwanted pregnancies, the normalization of sex is just what you do with whoever, whenever, however, and with whatever gender, gender identity you are, you want them to be, doesn't really matter, and the list is virtually endless. The respect for ourselves and the respect for others is gone. The appearance is that of a meat market with everyone out there buying and also selling. I don't think I need to go farther into the rise of promiscuity in this country, do I? Hey, love is love, right? And God is love. So stop judging me, man. You're harshing my sexual mellow. So I think, I think I've made the case that regardless of if or how much we were influenced by the communists... The reality is that this nation has fallen dramatically regarding sexual purity and family values, so we need to give them a solid point on this one, which brings them to 26.5 goals realized out of 40, which is 66.25% success. Now, early on in our look at these goals, very early on, they hit a success rate of about 78%. Farther along, however, about the highest they got was just a touch over 70%, so we should feel good that we're gaining some lost ground back. However, they're still two-thirds successful at making us a communist country so far, and only five more goals to go. That's not so good. But we'll see how the next episode goes. Maybe we'll make great strides. Uh, just a suggestion from old Dan, though. Don't hold your breath. So we'll meet again soon for episode 15 of our look at the 45 communist goals for America as read. Oh, go, you know the, you know the thing. Bye for now. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Well, clearly the motivation given by THE Dr. Now from Last Update has worked. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the previous goal update number 14. For now, let's jump right into goal update number 15, my uh, weekly reckoning, if you will. Regarding weight loss, 
After a week of no loss, a week of 0.2 pounds lost, a week of 0.6 pounds gained, I allegedly lost 5.2 pounds over the last week. Now, the immediate question that you and I both have is, is that a real number? And yeah, I think so. Uh, as the next few days after the Tuesday weigh-in sustained that loss and actually knocked off a bit more. So to try to reason through how this could be, well, when you average the four weeks out, that's only 1.2 pounds lost per week. So that's definitely doable. My net calories through that period, the intake versus outgo, were higher than previous, but I don't think I had a seven-day period where the average was over 2,000 per day. So that's in the sustain range, at least. And I know, at least for my body, my metabolism, such as it is, or, or whatever I've got going on here, I've generally been able to pig out just a bit for a handful of days, maybe a week or so, and any weight gained during that time drops off almost immediately if I get back to diet and exercise right away. If I don't, well, then it goes into long-term storage, and I get to work that off later. Plus, I know certain things like big bowls of salty popcorn will cause big bowels of salty popcorn and water weight that will hang on for two to three days. So all that said, I think this seems legit, albeit odd, I agree. I mean, did I actually lose 5.2 pounds in one week? No, I, I didn't. It's just how my Tuesday weigh-ins and the days prior to the Tuesdays and the things eaten, etc., etc. It's just kind of how all that came together. So to wrap up the weight loss goal for this week, I'm now down 5.9 pounds more than my goal pace with a total weight lost in 15 weeks of 28.4 pounds. That's just shy of two pounds per week, which puts me at 186 pounds even. I'm putting this as a light green for my goal as it appears that I might have cobbled enough of that old broken down wagon back together to gingerly step back on. And that horse ain't dead yet, so we'll just keep spurring him on. Now, moving to books or pages read, well, we're rolling right along. Another 243 pages read, most of these in the book that takes less intense focus. The book I finished this week was Bill O'Reilly's Killing the Legends. It's a three-story book chronicling the rise, the use, and the deaths of Elvis Presley, John Lennon, and Muhammad Ali. The point of the book was to show how these ultra-talented nobodies coming out of nowhere, show a little talent, and are then used, abused, and used up to the point that it physically or mentally destroys them, or generally both. How the allure of fame has a very dark side to it. Of course, we know this, right? I mean, it doesn't happen to everyone, but when you look at the lives of celebrities, we see what a disaster they are. Drugs, alcohol, rotating marriages, or partners at least, abuse, scandals, and it seems like the younger these managers get the, their talents into the talent, the worse it is. At any rate, as with all the other killing books by O'Reilly, once again, another excellent book. Well written, very interesting, a relatively fast read. I definitely recommend it. So this puts me at 2,691 pages so far this year, which is just over 224% of my gold pace. So this stays a nice solid green. Moving to Bible reading. I'm back to what's become kind of my normal weekly reading after a slight dip last week, meaning that my pace compared to my goal ticked very slightly back up after ticking very slightly down 
last week. This week, I'm at 157.5% of my goal pace, making this a dark green. Again, as a refresher to what I was shooting for, I had seven months left in my daily Bible, and I was going to try to get that done by the end of October. At my current pace, I'm on track to finish the daily Bible by the end of June, approximately, likely sooner, which is good. Then I'll be able to jump into the next endeavor uh, with regard to Bible reading. More to come on that soon. Finally, devotions. As I've mentioned a few times, I think I've kind of hit my stride here. Another week of reading them every morning. Remember, my goal pace was to read them based on the devotional book I'm using, which is Table Talk Magazine from Ligonier. They do five devotions for the five weekdays. Then they have a weekend story or something like that that you're supposed to read. Now, I was going to follow the five-day-a-week reading thing, and so that's what I set my pace to. But I've got so many back issues still that I can go at seven days a week for a couple of years probably, and so reading my devotions every morning brings my progress to 124.2% of my goal pace, each week just slightly ticking up. Another solid green week for this one. Now, I think I mentioned it before, but I kind of quit playing games on the phone, cold turkey. I mean, truth be told, I only had a few games I was playing, and they were just your silly little puzzle games. Now, I've got a few other games on my phone, Some that take actual brain power, some that don't, but they got played rarely. But what I found myself doing is sitting down watching TV or really just sitting idle anywhere and I just play one or two rounds or 743 rounds, you know, same difference. And before you know it, poof, there goes an hour. I'd get caught in this loop where if I just win this one more, I'll have an even number for my level. Or... I just got this power up and it's only good for 30 minutes. Well, I can't let that go to waste. Or if I just get to this level, I'll get these rewards. But each thing led to the next thing. And eventually you either die enough times that you run out of lives. And I am not paying for more lives. Or you just have to put it down and waste something that you've earned. So instead of trying to police myself on this stupid game, I just stopped playing it. Now, I still have it. It's still installed. I'm just not playing it. I tried to look back on my phone to see when the last time was that I played it. I think it's been too long ago. But looking at my goal tracking worksheet, I would say that it was likely right after March 7th, as that's when my pages really shot up. And that game was easily the greatest factor to me not reading. It was just wasting time swiping for matches. Anyway, If nothing else, maybe that's a motivational tale for you. If you're trying to accomplish a goal, whether it's working out, reading, Bible reading, prayer, devotions, whatever, and you just don't have time, well, look for places where you have your time wasters. You may be one of the few that has every waking minute legitimately spoken for, but I highly doubt it. It may not be a game. Maybe it's social media or YouTube, or maybe you're just piddling around the house accomplishing nothing. Most of us have enough wasteful leisure time that we can sacrifice a little bit of it and use it for something else. And with that, I'll close out update number five. Okay, bye.